this morning, Isaiah 46, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter. As we begin, let me remind you, this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. It's wonderful reminders of the light shining in the darkness. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been borne by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from, from, afar, from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The grass withers the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand the truths that you show us here. That indeed it would be the light of our life. That Jesus Christ would be made so clear to us that we would see him and behold him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I used an illustration of being born in a cave, uh, and I want to return to that illustration uh, just for a moment. What I said in, uh, a few weeks ago was that uh, being born into this world is like, like uh, you were born into a cave that was completely dark, absolutely dark, uh, and yet you had eyes that worked just fine and ears that could hear, but, but in the darkness you couldn't make out anything. And so it almost was like you're born blind and you're born, uh, born uh, even deaf uh, because you can't make out the things uh, that are there in the cave. Uh, most of us are born um, uh, not with a physical blindness, although some people are, but all humans are born in this world spiritually blind. That's the testimony of Scripture, that all humans are unable to see the world how it truly is. So that's why the cave illustration helps us. Well, I want to stretch that illustration a little bit for us uh, because I want you also to imagine that you have grown up in this cave 
Again, that your eyes, you were born with eyes that work, but ears that hear, but, but they don't really work in the darkness the way that they're supposed to. And you're used to the darkness when then all of a sudden the cave begins to tremble, tremble, an earthquake happens and the foundations of the cave shake. And then, then the top of the cave opens and light begins to shine down in the cave. You've never experienced light before and all of a sudden it's there. How would you respond to the light? What do you think? What would you do when the light comes in and starts showing you how you've been living and, and the condition you've been living in? Would you be excited about the light's presence? Would you be glad that it was there? Would you be in awe of all the things that it showed you? Well, think about it this way. What are you like whenever you're in a dark room and somebody turns on the light? Your natural physical response is to shield your eyes because for a split second, pain goes into your eyes and you have to cover your eyes because it hurts. Now, because we're used to the light, our eyes adjust and we can see after just a few moments. But imagine you were born in this condition of deep darkness. More than likely, when that light penetrated into the darkness, we would cover our eyes and run away from it. And we would not want to see the light or see the world the way that it really is. Um, Now, think about it this way. Let's extend the illustration out a little bit further. Imagine you are somebody that lives on the surface and you know that there are people that live in a cave in deep darkness. And you want to introduce them to the light. How would you go about doing it? How would you get them used to the light and able to see the light? And I want you to think about that this morning as a way of introducing the problem of light in darkness. Because the light shining in the darkness is the Christmas message. Now, Christmas is not the final victory of light over darkness. But it is a staging ground for that victory. The victory was proclaimed beginning in Genesis 3.15. It's that very crucial text to understand and know that in Genesis 3.15, God promised that he would send a male, a male son, to come to crush the head of the serpent. God promised victory and a little bit of light was shown through that promise in Genesis 3.15. And he says, I'm going to overcome the darkness with light. He's going to shine the light in the darkness. And what's going to happen? The darkness is going to scatter. The darkness is going to flee. And God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to accomplish this victory of light. But God does this. And the the testimony of the scriptures is this way, that God does it slowly. He slowly introduces the light into the world. But the victory has been promised. The victory has been assured even if we don't see that victory in its totality right now. In this passage, I want you to see that Isaiah proclaims the victory of light over darkness and the specific victory over Babylon. Okay, So I want to look at this passage in two ways this morning. First, we're going to see that Yahweh teaches about darkness and lightness, the reality of darkness and the reality of lightness. And then secondly, because of what he teaches... Yahweh commands us to remember the light in verses 8 through 13. So let's begin with verses 1 through 7. 
about uh, with Yahweh teaching about darkness and lightness. Now, as we begin this, I want you to think about the Ten Commandments and, and do something maybe that you've never done before. Consider the order of the Ten Commandments. Now, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with man's relationship to God. And then the last six are man's relationship to man, what God requires of our relationship with each other. And the first four commandments, man's relationship to man, how does God begin? What does he say? You shall have no other gods before me. He begins with idolatry. You ever considered or thought about why God begins there? I mean, sometimes we think, well, God maybe was just making things up as he went along. It had a nice ring to it. I'll start right there. Well, no, that's not how God actually operates. The Ten Commandments are structured the way that they are. And God begins with the first commandment. You shall not have any gods before me because that's the commandment that touches on every other of the commandments. It's the commandment that deals with our sinful hearts and our uh, desire to worship, but because of sin, worship idols, worship false gods. God begins actually in the Ten Commandments with the most important commandment because, again, this is the commandment that touches all of the other commandments. And here's an example of it. Um, Well, let me say it this way, that idolatry is actually the sin that is behind all other sins that you commit. Whether, no matter how small or how large, idolatry is behind all of them. And let me give you this example from the Apostle Paul. In Colossians 3, 5, this is what the Apostle Paul says. So in the New Testament, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. Which is idolatry. So do you see that? All of the sins of the flesh that Paul mentions, he says, are really a cover for hearts that worship false gods. And that means that all of our sin is really a matter of false worship. Which actually has huge implications for for us because... There's not a day or a moment in your life that is not involved in worship, whether false worship or true worship. Now let's look back to Isaiah and let me connect the dots for you here. How does Isaiah begin chapter 46? He mentions two gods of the Babylonians, Bel and Nebo. Bel is the great master god over all the gods. He goes by another name, Marduk. Uh, but there's Bel, and then there's also Bel's son, Nebo. And these were the two high gods that were worshipped by the Babylonians. And look at what Yahweh says about him. He says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Now, this is what's called polemical writing. And polemical writing is essentially, when it's in the Bible, it is essentially trash-talking, Okay? This is God looking at other gods and he is tearing them down through the use of words. Much the same way that uh, athletes on, on the field of competition will trash talk each other to try to humiliate the other one. Very similar to that, God is doing that with the gods of the Babylonians. So he begins by saying, Bel bows down and Nebo 
stoops. Because what Yahweh wants to communicate is the utter foolishness of worshiping any other god besides Him. A little background is going to help us here. Every Babylonian New Year, the Babylonian priests would go into their temples and they would all, with a lot of effort, pick up the big statues of their gods, Bel, Nebo, Et, um, um, who are the other ones? Astar and some of, some of the other ones. They would bear them all up. They would carry them out. They would put them on carts and, and then they would parade them through the streets, through the Babylonian streets, the large major cities of the Babylonians. Um, and so uh, you, what would happen is the priest would, they would put them on the carts. The carts would be drawn by oxen or other cattle. Um, they would go through the streets. The priest would be before and behind and they would have loud drums and cymbals. They would make a lot of noise uh, and they would be calling people to come out and to worship their gods and acknowledge their gods. Um, there would be a lot of fanfare. There would be a lot of... Uh, celebration involving this. And to get at the idea, I want you to think of the large and raucous uh, Mardi Gras parades that happen in New Orleans. Think about all the decadence that goes along uh, with those and the revelry that actually increases as you get closer and closer to Fat Tuesday. Uh, what happens, the parades get more and more elaborate, more, uh, more and, and more raucous. Um, and as the parades go through the streets of Babylon, just like they would go through the streets of New Orleans, here's what would happen. Like, like the, I have a vivid memory of my parents sticking me on top of one of those uh, things, you know, in the parade grounds in New Orleans when we lived there and watching the parades and these massive floats that would go by and how shaky they seemed. Well, very similar to that, the idols... Uh, of the Babylonians would be on these carts going through these rough streets and on, on the carts the idols would be swaying back and forth. And the priests, in order to stop the idols from falling over, would stick out their hands and would hold them up. The priests would hold up their gods to make sure the gods didn't fall. Do you see the ridiculousness of that? These supposed all-powerful gods can't even keep themselves uprighted on a wagon drawn by beasts. Well, Isaiah continues that. Look at verse 2. It actually, he emphasizes their, um, this ridiculousness even more. Because, and this doesn't come through in the English, but in the Hebrew it says, stoop they, or bow they. Meaning, he starts with the first word, what they're doing, they bow. And that's a way in Hebrew to emphasize what they're doing. And he says these idols are so impotent, they have to be borne along by beasts of burden. They have to be helped by priests because they can't help themselves. They can't keep themselves upright. And then at the end of verse 2, that derision from Yahweh, that trash talk continues because God says, you know what's going to happen? In a couple of years, when the Persians come in and overrun your cities, they're going to actually steal your gods from you. They're going to take your gods away from your temples and put them in their temples. Your gods are so impotent that they can't keep themselves from being stolen by invaders. How silly it is for anyone to worship gods like these. The beginning in verse 3, Yahweh actually makes a contrast between the worship of these false gods and, and, and himself. He shows how utterly different from these other gods, these false gods, he is. 
Look at what he says. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Um, What he's saying there is, you know, all of those other gods have to be carried. But God says, the one true God says, I am the one who has carried. How long has he carried Israel, his beloved? He says, from your birth, actually, from before you were even born, I have been carrying my beloved. I have been taking care of you. And Yahweh even promises, and what a great promise, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. Do you see the promises of God? The other gods and all of the gods of the pantheon that all other cultures and creatures that, that they bow down to and worship. God says, there's no God like me. All of the gods, they have to be helped by people. They are dependent upon people. And if the gods are dependent upon people for help, they are not gods. They should not be worshipped. Here's an example of it. Um, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is one of the religious writings of the Babylonian people... Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, it's all about the, um, the interaction of some, some of the heroes. Um, and there's a story in there about a great flood. Well, all ancient cultures have stories about floods. It's almost as like a flood actually happened and they all know about it. Well, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the flood happens this way. Uh, the gods who have created mankind are really tired of all the racket humans are making. We make too much noise night and day, and the gods can't get to sleep. So they get together and they say, we're fed up with our creation. Let's just kill them all. So they say, good idea. But then one of them goes, but we can't kill them all. There might be some good ones among them, and that would be unjust. So let's save the good ones. Okay. And so they, they decide, okay, there's this one guy, Utnapishtim. We're going to save him. And so Utnapishtim, the gods make a boat for him. They put him inside. They send a flood. There's a lot of correspondence between the Noah flood and and the epic of Gilgamesh flood. Um, But they put him inside. But then the gods realize a few days into the flood, after they've killed all the people, it begins to dawn on them. They are dependent upon people for their food. And the gods, because they have wiped out all of humanity and wiped out all of the food, they have nothing to eat. And the gods begin to get worried that they are going to die. And so very quickly, they have, to, they have to decide what to do. So they dry up the water. They take Utnapishtim and they bring him out. Utnapishtim makes a sacrifice. And then literally in their writings, they say that the gods gather like flies around the sacrifice. So the Babylonians, this is how they view their gods. They're all-powerful gods. They wanted them all dead. They couldn't stand them. They were, uh, they were really um, capricious and silly gods um, who couldn't stand the noise of the humans. They wanted them all dead. And then they were so stupid afterwards <laughs> that they had to come up with a way to eat. And when they did eat, they were like flies around a dead animal. That's what the gods are like. That's what false worship is like. Yahweh doesn't need any help from us. As a matter of fact, over and over in the scriptures, Yahweh says that he 
is the helper of mankind. And that is good news for us. I want you, I want you to wonder if you see then the darkness of idolatry and the lightness of Yahweh. All idols, even modern idols invented by the hearts of modern men and women, are dependent upon you. They're dependent upon modern man for their well-being. Because you are slaves to your own idols. That's the way that it works. You are their slaves. I want you to think about it this way. Think about the man or the woman who cannot possibly put down their phone That person is a slave to that device. It isn't helping them, but it actually is stealing from them. And in order for that device to have any power over its user, the user has to carry it around. I mean, this is literal. They have to bear up the thing that they worship and hold it up. Because apart from the user, the worshiper... Bearing it up, it has no power and it can do nothing on its own. That's the way that all idols work. They must be carried. And in our sinful hearts, our darkened hearts, we give ourselves over to these things. But Yahweh does not need you to carry him. As a matter of fact, he says, I have come to remove your burden from you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does he give rest? Well, he is lightness. And I'm using that word in two ways. He is the light, but he is also lightness because he carries his people. He is so light that he carries us. You can't get any lighter than that. And that's good news for us. The lightness of Yahweh. Versus the darkness of idolatry. And secondly, because of that, Yahweh says, well, you need to do something now. In verses 8 through 13, he moves from teaching to application. He has enlightened his audience to the true nature of idols and his own nature. He is the sovereign ruler over everything. He's the one who wills the events of history. He is active. He needs no help. He needs no counsel. And now, because Yahweh is the one true God, he places demands on his creation, we have to do something. Well, what is the demand? What does he want us to do? Well, you look here in verse 8. He says, Remember, recall, remember. God is like a teacher, and he is like a teacher because he's the greatest teacher who ever was. And what teachers do before an exam, I hope your teachers do this, you young ones, they don't give you new materials before you have an exam, but A week or a day before the exam, they say, let's review the lessons you've already learned. And so God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Three times in this one verse. Remember the old things. Remember the things that I've already taught you. And here's what Yahweh is doing. He's calling the Babylonians and he's calling us who know our history lessons, who should know our history lessons, to remember and look back over history as proof that the God of Israel is the one true God. The Babylonians considered themselves very learned and academic. What the Babylonians would do is a powerful empire. They would go in, they would take over a nation, 
And then they, would, they wouldn't just kill everybody like the Assyrians would do. They would find the best and the brightest. They would go in and get the best and the brightest, the smartest of the young men and the, the most beautiful of the young women. They would get all of the books of these other cultures and they would bring them, in to, bring them to Babylon or to their major cities and they would put them in schools of their own. They also would learn from these very bright people from these other cultures. They would read their text so that they could understand what all the other cultures would understand and know. If you want, want to see this more clearly, you can look at the books of Daniel and Esther to see that that's what the Babylonians did. And what you see, especially in the book of Daniel, is that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three very bright Jewish boys, had an influence over Babylonian society. That they actually were able to proclaim the good news of Yahweh so that other Babylonians would reject the worship of idols. You can think of King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar and other kings in Babylon, through the influence of some of the Jews, knew the truth, had access to the Old Testament, and they actually literally worshipped Yahweh, rejecting their pagans. They learned their lessons. But ultimately, and right after King Nebuchadnezzar, he died, his son rose to power, and his son returned to paganism. They didn't turn from their wickedness, from their idolatry to Yahweh. They instead hardened their hearts against God. They didn't learn their lesson even from the other stories of the Jewish people, like, for example, the Exodus, where Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, even in spite of all the proofs that God was the one true God. They needed to remember the light. That is to say, they needed to remember uh, the, the light of the work of God in history. God here reminds the Babylonians, or again, us, anyone who's listening, that He has declared what is going to happen before it happens. He says that in verse 10. He says that He has planned things from long ago, and they will they happen at the end of verse 10. He says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. What is His purpose? Verse 11, Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. He's talking again about Cyrus, king of Persia, who would come and wipe away the Babylonians. And he says, that is my will, that a man from the east, who is called a bird of prey, will come and wipe out the Babylonians. God says, I'm going to do this. I have spoken it. Look at the end of verse 11. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have proposed and I will do it. God says, it's going to happen. There's nothing that can be done about it. You need to learn from this. Because the lessons of God's faithfulness and God's power from the past help us to grasp onto His promises for the future. So we need to learn our lesson today from history that God has done all that He said He will do so that as we look forward to the light of the future to grasp onto those promises and then Yahweh's final command is this in verses 12 through 13. He says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. He says, they are you who are far from righteousness. I want you to notice this. He's talking to people who are stubborn over the heart, who refuse to listen to him. And he says, you are far from righteousness. But that's not because righteousness is far from them. As a matter of fact, God says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. God's word, as he concludes this passage, 
is both a comfort and it's a discomforting message. His salvation is so close, and yet so many people refuse that salvation. Some people will ask this question, well, where is God's salvation? Where can I find it? And God tells us exactly where his salvation is located. I want you to notice this. He says at the very end of verse 13, I will put salvation where? In Zion, for Israel my glory. The Lord's salvation comes from Zion. He has placed it in Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the Old Testament name of the church, God's people. It is through the mission and the work of the church that people are saved because the church points people to Jesus in his saving work. But so many people look at the church and they see the church who is a mess and who is in shambles, who can't even get joy to the world right. <laughs> and the world looks and says there's no possible way that salvation can come from that mess because the church can't even take care of herself, which is exactly the point. I heard a pastor say it this way. There's no way that Christianity, or some people will say this, there's no way that Christianity is true, just look at the church. Whereas God says, there's no way that Christianity isn't true, just look at the church. Look at the ones that I have saved. Look out among us. We are a mess. And God has placed his salvation in the church. Because, now, just remember that people are not saved by the church. The church cannot save anyone. But God has placed in the church the preaching and teaching of the word of God. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is through the preaching of the word that the light of God goes out into the world. And people are saved. Do you want salvation? Look to the message of Jesus Christ as it's found in the church. So there's what God says. Remember, 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 and listen, pay attention. In conclusion, I remember a few years ago, it's kind of funny I'm using this, this illustration because I can't really remember hardly any of the, the details of it. I was in a classroom and I was learning about the way that light works. That's where my understanding of what we were learning about ends. I, I don't really know what the purpose of it all was. I don't remember what I was supposed to be learning. Uh, that's kind of my school, uh, schooling in a nutshell. <laughs> so There it is. But, but I remember the teacher, he held a flashlight, and then he put uh, a piece of cardboard paper, uh, or a construction, black construction paper over the top, and then he turned out the lights, and he flipped on the light. He flipped on the flashlight. And the room was dark. He had covered all the windows with stuff so that the room was dark. You couldn't see. And then he took a pen and he began to punch little holes into the construction paper. You know what happened when he would punch a hole in the construction paper? The light would burst forth and would shine out, would hit the ceiling. And, and kind of slowly as he did that, the light began to dis disperse all through the room. Now, again, I don't remember what he was trying to teach, but I remember learning some things from that. Learning the power of light and the way that light really could not be held back, that the darkness could not stop the light. And I used to think, to relate it to Christmas, I used to think that Christmas 
was the message of God's overwhelming the darkness with light. But that's not what he did at Christmas. At Christmas, and really all through the Old Testament, and even today, it's like God is taking a little pen and he dots it in the darkness in which we live. Now, Christmas might be more like God kind of tears it a little bit more so that God himself comes to be born of a virgin. Second person of the Trinity comes to be born as a human, taking flesh on himself for the purpose of going to the cross so that one day he would go to the cross, take our sins on himself, that the temple curtain that separated us from God would be torn in two and that the light would go forth more and more and more. Christmas is like a pinhole being, being, breaking in and letting the light shine in the darkness. Slowly and surely, God is working to shine the light in the darkness. He's working to shine the light into this deep, dark cave that we live in so that we can see the light. Slowly and surely, He is continuing to call us to faith in Jesus Christ. The question is, will you acknowledge the light of Jesus Christ? Will you accept the lightness of Yahweh? Or will you continue to be burdened by your idols that you have to, be, you have to carry around who suck all of your energy and your power from you? We need to remember the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message and we do pray that you would help us to see your lightness in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that he would be glorified in our midst, that through all of our celebrations during this Christmas season, that we would remember Jesus, that we would enjoy the light that he has given us.